Good morning, everyone. We're going to be reading from the first, first, first th- uh, Timothy verses one through seven, and in your pew Bible, that's page nine ninety one, and I'll be reading my same version from John MacArthur's study Bible, and I think that it will go pretty much the same. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. By command of God, our Savior, of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain and remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away in vain in vain discussions desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the word of God. May we pray. Gracious God in heaven, we come to you this morning asking uh, for all the guidance that we need to understand. We, We know sometimes that we have difficulty with your sovereign power, and we seem to do different things with that. And we just pray, Lord, that you will forgive us of our sins and cleanse our heart and our mind, and that you will prepare us today for the word that Cody will be delivering. We're so thankful, Lord, for the blessings that you continue to bestow upon this church body in all that we do, Lord, we sometimes miss the meaning of what's important. And, Lord, we just ask you to continue watching God over us. We ask these things in your Son's Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We may be seated. The world speaks of passion like it's a commodity, and in many ways it is. People have a passion for all sorts of things, and I'm not sure what your passion might be, but it could be... Any number of things. Some have passion for sports or woodworking or vitamins or nutrition or graphic design or cooking or music or the arts or essential oils or philosophy or ideologies or methods of schooling, religion, hunting, family, health, nonprofit work, travel. And the gurus of the advertising agencies know this well. And they tend to bend and fit their sales to fit demographics defined by someone's passion. And yet what drives that passion? Is it the pure delight of that particular venture? Or is that passion there because it just makes you feel good? Maybe about yourself. A simple and effective test to determine the driving force behind your passion is how you respond when you encounter opposition 
to your passion? Do you get offended? Do you get easily upset at the individual who has dared to question your passion? How dare they question something I love so much? Do you attack the character of the individual? Or do you find yourself seeking to win over your opposition by describing the enjoyment, the potential, the life-changing benefits? The Apostle Paul here, his central driving passion in life is to know Christ and preach Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. Paul's driving passion in his life is to preach the gospel for the glory of God alone. A passion that is so deep, when opposition arises, his love for others and delight to declare the truth actually increases toward the opposition rather than decreases. Rather than shying away from what they're saying in opposition to him, it actually forces him and presses him closer to them. And that passion is what has driven him to write the letter that you hold in your lap this morning. The letter of 1 Timothy. I trust your Bible is open there. I want to begin our study over the next couple months in 1 Timothy by quickly just sort of um, putting us into a better understanding, getting us better into a better understanding of how this book is structured and laid out, some of the main themes and some of the things that we will see over the months studying the book. It's a very simple structure. There are basically uh, three sections of the book. If you're looking at your Bible, you'll see in chapter 1 that Paul begins this with a warning against false teachers. And I'm simply reading off the headings in my Bible, and it's pretty close. He begins by confronting false teachers. That's through chapter 1, chapter 1 through verse 20. He then defines gospel-shaped living. In chapter 2, all the way through the end of chapter 3. And finally, he summarizes this first section of three chapters by declaring the goal of gospel-shaped living and warning against false teachers. And you'll find that at the end of chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he articulates the gospel. Well, you can pretty much take that section, confronting false teachers, gospel-shaped living, and then the goal for such behavior, and then flip it over again, and that's exactly what happens in chapter 4 through 6. You'll notice, again, beginning with this teaching against false teaching in the first five verses of chapter 4. Then he articulates how Timothy's life should be shaped by the gospel in chapter 4, 6 through 16. And then finally, he defines the church's behavior defined by the gospel and relationships. Chapter 5, all the way through chapter 6, verse 2. And then he concludes the whole book by again coming back to confronting false teaching. Those are pretty simply the three sections that provide some structure to this book. Now, when you're studying a book, it's helpful to know why the book was written. And this book has two purpose statements to it. To tell us why Paul is writing this book. You'll notice the first one is in our text this morning. Chapter 1, verse 3. 
I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That's the first purpose statement. The second one I've already read. You can find in chapter 3, verse 14 through 15. That is, that we might know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. If that's the structure and two of the purpose statements for the book, what are some of the main themes that you will see? Well, one of them is the theme of faith. I would encourage you this week to just take time, maybe in one, of, one morning for your devotions, and read straight through the book of First Timothy. And as you do so, read with a pen, pencil, or highlighter in hand, and note the amount of times that you see the word faith. And you will see at least 19 times the word faith, three of those in our section this morning. You will also see that, obviously, as we've already mentioned, a theme is confronting false teaching. He opens with it, he ends with it, and he starts the second section in chapter 4 with confronting false teachers. The flip side of that being a theme of defending the truth. Defending the truth. Another theme that we will see is, if we're not going to hold a false teaching, we're going to hold and defend true teaching, What should your life look like in living out one's life underneath sound doctrine? Or what should your, what should be the shape of the church and one's life springing from the gospel of Jesus Christ? If we had to take uh, uh, time, and I've done the work for you, if you want to write this down, feel free to do so, maybe on the top of your Bible, a one, and it's long, sentence phrase, one long sentence to describe the book of First Timothy, this is what I believe it should be. Biblical, sound doctrine, springing from a pure faith, will be confirmed in the church through sound living, sound teaching, and submission to appropriate relationship roles designed to guard the purity of sound doctrine. Let me say that again. And as I say it, understand that this will be the the melody of this book that will come in and out in different ways. That biblical sound doctrine springing from a pure faith will be confirmed in the church through sound living, sound teaching, and submission to appropriate relationship roles designed to guard the purity of sound doctrine. Well, this morning in chapter 1, 1 through 7, Paul's instruction to Timothy and this church here in Ephesus is that they might not teach a different doctrine. Timothy, charge certain persons to not teach a different doctrine. And you can already hear how the charge to not teach certain doctrines rings with the melody of teaching sound doctrine. In fact, even for us this morning, not the early church, here 2,000 or more years later, what we will be confronted with is that the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ must be well guarded. The purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ must be well guarded. It is not something that is to be played with, 
trifled with. It's something that should be well guarded. Well, if you're looking at your Bible, I've broken this uh, passage 1, 1 through 7, into three different sections. We're going to take a look at verse 1 and 2. Paul is going to write to Timothy. And then we'll take a look at uh, verses 3 and 4. And finally, 5 through 7. Well, who is writing this book? Paul is the author of the book of 1 Timothy. If you uh, want to get more insight into the historical background of 1 Timothy, go read the book of Acts, and specifically the chapters 19 and 20 of the book of Acts. Paul, we're told, had spent more than two years in this region of Ephesus, and he had established a church. A church that had begun with just 12 and had grown extensively during his time there. In a region that was quite hostile to Christianity. He had labored immensely. Immensely, Paul had a love for this early church. And his love and care for this region is quite incalculable. In fact, it's to such an extent that it does bear out fruit. You might find yourself wondering at the end of this book, well, is his charge carried out? And does this church turn from false doctrine to true doctrine? The answer is yes. Read Revelation chapter 2, where we're told Ephesus does turn from false doctrine and holds to true. Paul is writing this book of 1 Timothy, probably following his third missionary journey following his house arrest in Rome, and yet before his second arrest in Rome that would ultimately lead to his death. This book was probably written somewhere between 61 and 63 AD. You notice Paul begins this book with a a bit of an authoritative tone. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Galatians 1.1 has Paul explain in greater detail the authority that he has because of the apostleship he has through God's gift to him in Christ. Paul is writing with a tone of uh, great and vital importance. You notice this, just this word command. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us that believers are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Paul is commanded by God to preach the gospel. Paul is commanded by God to continue sound in, soundly in the faith. And here he is, right out of the gate, providing some authoritative, authoritative, authoritative nature to what he is writing. Notice he bases authority in God our Savior. Most of the time when we think of uh, our Savior, we think of God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And yet here... Paul describes God as our Savior, which certainly is a biblical idea. All the way from the Old Testament, God is the author of our salvation. God is the one who has given us Christ. It is from God that we are saved. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The fact that we are saved through Christ is because of God. And because of that... Our hope is then in Jesus Christ. Our hope is then in Jesus Christ. In Christ, our hope of glory. And so there's this tone of uh, authority and yet a tone of hope. 
a, a tone that there is great possibility for this church that we will find out here in a minute is giving themselves to false teaching. And yet Paul is ground, grounding this entire, entire book in the gospel and in the authority of God. Brothers and sisters, uh, these credentials and responsibilities of Paul save the apostleship of Paul are yours as well. Uh, Paul is, and his passion is not just restricted to Paul, as if he's the LeBron James of the Christian world and no one ever else is going to be like him. Yes, I just used a basketball reference. As if we could never have the same passion as Paul does. You see, Paul's passion, in fact, even his authority to confront false doctrine, comes not because of his personality, not because of his particular gifting, but from the gospel gifted to him, which is the same gospel gifted to you. Therefore, we are to be like Paul. We should have a passion for truth as well. In fact, we should be those who are seeking to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and self, heart, soul, mind, and strength to the point that Paul is saying, Amen. Go, brother, go. In fact, he would probably be doing backflips in his grave to even have the idea articulated that somehow he was the only one who could have this passion and love for the gospel and his father, God and the Lord Jesus Christ that is exhibited here. The authority to charge and warn others in love arises from your understanding of the love of God for you through Jesus Christ, your Lord. That's simply, Paul is so overwhelmed by the love that has been exhibited to him by God the Father, his Savior, that's just overflowing to others. To the point that he's willing to even confront. Well, he writes this book to Timothy. That's verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. We find Timothy first mentioned in Acts 16. And certainly we know more about him in 2 Timothy 1. He was a young man in this time. Probably somewhere between his 30s and early 40s. He was a, a young man that had come from a family heritage of Christian faithfulness. Many presume, even by uh, Paul's writing here, my true child in the faith, that Timothy had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of Paul. Many assume that Timothy was probably a timid man. Thus Paul's exhortation in 2 Timothy, that God has not given him and us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and self-control. Now, This book is written to Timothy, but it's really written to Timothy through Timothy. For instance, Paul and Timothy knew each other for probably 10 or more years. And so if you have known me for 10 or more years and we have worked closely together, you would probably not find me greeting you on a Sunday morning. Good morning. My name's Cody, pastor, commanded by God. Internally called by the Spirit to preach the good news. And you have affirmed that call externally by calling me to be your pastor. Welcome. You look at me as if to say, I know. I've been with you for ten plus years. We've done ministry together. So why does Paul start this? 
this whole book in this way because he recognizes that the work of what is going on in this church that Timothy is being charged to do is not a small one. And he wants Timothy to have a compadre, so to speak, in this work. He wants the people that are reading this letter to recognize that Paul is writing to Timothy, but in many ways is writing to the church as well. And so he then encourages Timothy with grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. It's a standard greeting of Paul's with the exception of this word mercy. What are we without the grace and mercy and peace of God? We are certainly not equipped for the work of the church without the grace, mercy, and peace of God. And the foundation Timothy needed to deal with a peaceless trial in the church is the peace that he had with God. Timothy, you're going into battle here. But let me say that there is not a battle between that which is most important, you and God. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, be grounded in that peace to attack this peaceless situation. The peace of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God would bring ballast to the storm he was being charged to encounter in the church. I don't know what your life is like this morning. I don't know the storms that you may be encountering. I don't know the peaceless situations that you may have. But I do know that your only ability to get through them is given to you by the grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. What you need more than anything is not a a self-help guide. Uh, You don't need another counselor to give you another tactic. You need the gospel of Jesus Christ if you're an unbeliever. And if you're a believer, you have everything you need through the power of Christ, the Spirit, and the church to peacefully work through what may seem like unpeaceful situations. So where do you stand before Christ this morning? Do you have peace with God that comes only through Jesus Christ? Or do you recognize your need for a Savior in order to gain that grace, mercy, and peace that you so desperately need? A peace with God is way more important. It is eternal than any peace you might seek here on this earth. Come to Christ in saving faith. Repent of your sin and gain the peace that comes only from and given to you by God the Father. Well, this is his standard greeting. Paul then launches into why he has written this letter. Point number two, charge certain people. Verses 3 and 4. Charge certain people. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Notice yet again his authoritative tone and this personal tone. This urging. This pressing into Timothy. Timothy, you must do this. Timothy, I'm pleading with you. You, you, you cannot go any other direction. I urge you, remain in Ephesus and charge certain persons. Well, let's learn a bit about Ephesus. Paul had obviously founded the church at Ephesus. He had previously written a letter to them, the book of Ephesians. Ephesus was on the west coast of Asia Minor, now central Turkey, 
modern day Turkey. It was at that time the second largest city in the Roman Empire outside of Rome. It was known for its temple to Artemis or Diana. The temple was constructed entirely of marble. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple itself had 60 to 100 solid marbles, marble columns that would rise 60 meters to the roof. That's 197 feet. This ceiling is somewhere around 42 feet. Triple it, quadruple it. It was an amazing feat of architecture. The whole city was. It was a city of great idolatry. It was a city of great diversity. It was a mosh pit of thinking and ideologies. Religion, in a sense, was power and even worshipped, idolized. Thus, those who taught religion profited and were revered. And you had Judaism on one hand and you had paganism side by side. Judaism was this fixed, unchanging religion that held its beliefs for hundreds of years right next to paganism, which was constantly shifting and changing with the wind. And here, these certain persons had come into the church. These people weren't outside of the church. They were in the pew. They were in the church. And they had begun to teach a different doctrine than Paul, an apostle, Commanded by God, taught to the church, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. More than just their public teaching, notice he was to charge them to privately not devote themselves to untrue, unreal myths. He wasn't just to say, don't teach these things publicly, but notice, don't devote yourselves. That's more of a private way of thinking. Don't devote yourselves privately to these untrue, unreal myths. That was sort of uh, rooted in paganism. Rather, not also to devote oneself to tales and useless, here's the Jewish side, genealogies, which produce speculations, which produce nothing that's actually true. Rather, then the stewardship from God, the administration, the outworking of God's plan of salvation through the gospel that is by faith. So Timothy was charged to not just confront their public life, but also their private life. Christianity will unavoidably demand changes in people's lives. Christianity at its core is going to cause commotion and even division between believers and unbelievers. The ground of our charge is in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of first importance. Doctrine does divide and it should if it is right doctrine. If it is doctrine that is of salvific importance. If it is doctrine that is clear in scripture. There should be a line drawn. There's many implications to Timothy's charge. One of them would be that the authority and responsibility of the church is to defend true doctrine. We've read that this morning in chapter 3, verse 15, that the church, FCF, is a pillar and buttress of the truth. You, as members, are to guard well the sound doctrine of Jesus Christ, are to guard well the biblical teaching of Scripture. In fact, we should be a church that welcomes anyone 
And yet, not all thoughts, ideas, or ways of living are welcome. If they're an affront to sound doctrine. That is your role. So you're not just sitting in the pew, listening. You're an active participant in saying, is what he's saying right according to scripture? Is what my friend who's at the end of the pew doing and saying in their life according to scripture? And we guard that well. Men, gentlemen, we should, as by God's grace, aspire to be elders to be pastors in the local church, we should be those who are knowing and learning and growing in sound doctrine and not just the knowledge of sound doctrine, but the ability to refute false doctrine. Are the clear doctrines of Scripture, all of us, clear in our mind? If they're clear in Scripture, they should be clear in our mind. And where do we spend the percentage of our time in study? It should be on the clearer doctrines. should bear more weight in our study than the less clear ones? Are we more concerned with knowing and talking about doctrine or living and walking out sound doctrine? We'll notice here in a minute that these false teachers desired to know this stuff just so they could espouse it for themselves, to be thought well of, but it wasn't actually being lived out. They were talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Well, Paul then gives Timothy an aim. This is the third section. Third point, the central aim and resulting consequence if missed. The central aim and resulting consequence if missed. This is chapter 1, 5 through 7. Why do we correct false doctrine? Why do we refute false doctrine? Why do we defend sound doctrine? Our aim for correcting is that one might be of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere, a sound faith grounded in love. Notice, every Christian is to do all things out of love. We're to love God first and to love others second. That is central to the Christian life, Matthew 22. It's loving to confront. Ephesians 4 verse 15. We're to speak the truth in love. We should be those who are loving one another enough to confront false living and false thinking. And it's so much easier to confront false living than it is false thinking. If I see a friend who's doing something that's wrong, it's easy for me to just sort of say, don't do that. It's clear in scripture. But if they're not doing something necessarily wrong, but they're articulating false thinking, that makes it more difficult. But do we love one another well enough to confront false living and thinking in a loving manner, in a manner of grace and mercy, and in a manner pressing for peace, but in a manner of love to the point that we want them to hold to sound doctrine, that they might have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sound faith? Are we loving one another, knowing one another well enough to have the ability and knowledge to warn? We must know each other well enough to know what the other people are thinking and doing. A love that is not selfish, it's not lazy. It's exhibited in a purity of heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. This love that is spoken of here, we have no ability in ourselves to develop. 
It's a blessed gift coming through faith, given to us by God and saving us in Christ, purifying our hearts, enlivening our consciences, giving us the ability to make moral evaluations and produce a faith without hypocrisy. Sound doctrine, the sound doctrine of the gospel is the only doctrine that has the power to produce this aim. Only the gospel can produce a heart that has purity. Only the gospel can produce a good conscience. Only the gospel can produce a sound faith without hypocrisy. And so our aim to confront false doctrine and teach sound is that people might be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and conform to the image of Christ for the glory of God. One who is walking in love from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith is one who has been cleansed by Christ and walking in that cleansing through repentance. Now, if we don't hold a sound doctrine, look what happens. Certain persons, verse 6, by swerving from these. What are these? What are these? These are pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Certain persons, by, by getting off course... Right doctrine is what keeps us on the right path. Wrong doctrine has us wandering into vain and useless discussion. Desiring to be the teachers of the law. Good to be a teacher, but wrong curriculum. The law, not the gospel. By getting away from sound doctrine, they have swerved off. They're in the ditch. They're bouncing along. John Calvin, quote, We ought, therefore, to take the greatest possible care not to seek anything in the holy and sacred word of God but solid edification, lest otherwise he inflict on us severe punishment for abusing it. These certain persons were had wandered away from sound doctrine and were simply speaking to the wind, just talking. They didn't even know what they were saying or the things about which they made confident assertions. And Calvin reminds us, the word of God should be for the edification of ourselves and others. And not simply to make ourselves look good. God has not given us these doctrines, these sound doctrines of scripture for us to play with as we like. We can't go to the Bible and pick and choose this or that doctrine. We can't shift doctrine as we desire to make it more comfortable or neglect it if it's uncomfortable. This word, the Bible, the teaching, the doctrine of Scripture was important enough of a message from a holy God that He sent His Son Christ to open our blind eyes, to bring life to our dead souls, to bring light to darkened understanding in order that we might have an ability to know His will for us. And how we should conduct ourselves as we await the return of his son. How he desires his bride, the church, to be organized and lived out for his glory. This isn't a choice you make. This isn't something you can pick up and say, now what do I like in here this morning and what can I cut out? No. We hold to these sound doctrines, the Bible, for his glory and we conform ourselves to them. There's a word of caution to all of us here this morning. 
It's not enough just to simply articulate doctrine absent from its biblical groundings. In fact, it's quite dangerous for us to be able to espouse doctrines that we believe, we have heard, you may have heard from this pulpit, you may have been taught from Scripture, and yet if we do not have the ability to ground those held doctrines in Scripture and defend them for ourselves, we are in a dangerous position. Any doctrine, no matter how soundful, how, how sound, how even biblical, if we are unable to back them with Scripture, those doctrines are in grave danger of being perverted. Good, sound, biblical doctrine, unable to be grounded in Scripture, is easily contaminated by our own thinking without the anchor of truth from Scripture. It's not enough to just be able to say some things. We need to be able to be people of the Word who can ground our understanding in the Word. Because the Word is what keeps us on course. What keeps us within the the boundaries of sound doctrine. Keeps us from wandering off. The importance then of something like a statement of faith. That's why we have one here at FCF. Is that keeps us, helps us understand the biblical doctrines of Scripture, the clear ones, and where they're found in Scripture. So take the statement of faith and study it. The references are there. Take your children and sit them down. Teach them from a good children's catechism. And don't just teach them the answers to the questions. Teach them the Scriptures that are the the foundation of those answers. Continually look to find ways to understand Scripture and grow your understanding of Scripture. Come to Wednesday night. Come to Wednesday night Bible study and come prepared with questions to help sharpen your understanding. Go to the men's or women's Bible study on Thursday afternoons. Place yourself in a discipleship relationship of some kind where you can encourage another brother or sister in the faith as you both grow deeper in your understanding of the Word. We cannot defend false to defend sound doctrine if we do not know sound doctrine from the word. 1 Timothy 1, 1-7 through 7, clearly teaches us, and all of Timothy will, that unsound doctrine leads to unsound living. And sound, unsound living should lead to, quest, to the questioning of one's salvation. 1 Timothy 1-7 through 7, clearly teaches that unsound doctrine leads to unsound living. And unsound living should lead to the questioning of one's salvation. We should guard sound doctrine. It's a means of grace providing protection from the enemy's lies. The purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ must be well guarded. And so we should be those who are continually repenting of our fear of man. Where necessary and lovingly, firmly, quietly if needed, calling one another to hold firm to sound doctrine. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be well guarded. It's the lifeblood of our faith. It's the IV for our lives this week. A tainted, a contaminated IV port leads quickly to disease and infection. But the pure gospel of Jesus Christ flowing through us toward others points to life, life eternal. And it's a truth that is, that is well worth defending. It's the only truth that will always give us life 
worth living. It's the only truth that will always give us a life to live eternally. It's a truth that grants us strength to live. It's a truth that points us toward how to live. And I trust that the gospel might be well rehearsed in our hearts and minds this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, that it has brought us from death to life. We pray, Father, we would be those who are so enamored by your love for us that we would love others, especially our brothers and sisters in the faith, that we would help one another guard sound doctrine in our lives. That husbands would be helpful to their wives and wives to their husbands. That brothers in the faith would help other brothers in the faith and other sisters in the faith. And sisters in the faith would help other sisters and brothers in the faith hold to sound doctrine in their lives. Not just in how we live, but in how we think. And what comes out of our mouths. I pray, Father, that you would give FCF A level of humility that we would rejoice and even delight when a brother or sister in the faith corrects us. We thank you, Father, for the body of Christ. The strength that comes from a body of believers. And Father, when we think of confronting another, we often think of Something that's uncomfortable. And yet, false doctrine is maybe the epitome of being without comfort. Because it's true doctrine, the true doctrine of Jesus Christ that brings us the peace and comfort that is with you, our God. And that's a comfort that gets us through anything else that's uncomfortable in our horizontal relationships. Strengthen us this week. Strengthen this church. I thank you for these these believers that love you, love your word, and love one another. Help us this week. May we be those who are continually preaching the gospel to ourselves and reminding one another that we might hold to, to the sound doctrine of Scripture for your glory and glory alone. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen.